So we're starting with um, Proverbs 23, verse 19 to 28, and then we'll flick over, if you want to pop your finger in there, to um, Proverbs 31 as well. We're going to start with Proverbs 23, verse 19 to 28. Listen, my son, and be wise, and set your heart on the right path. Do not join those who drink too much or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and do not sell it, wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. The father of a righteous child has great joy. A man who fathers a wise son rejoices in him. May your father and mother rejoice. May she who give you birth be joyful. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. For an adulterous woman is a deep pit and a wayward wife is a narrow well. Like a bandit, she lies in wait and multiplies the unfaithful among men. And then if you flick over to page 660, we're going to read Proverbs 31. Verses 10 to 31. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her, and she lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously and her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honour her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Thanks, Amanda. Hi, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, Warm welcome if you're visiting us for the first time today, if you're here uh, for the first time, we trust that you have an encouraging time with us and um, it'd be great to meet you after the service, uh, hang around for a cup of tea or coffee if you can, that'd be great. Um, you've actually come on board in the middle of a series we're doing on relationships. Uh, usually what we do at Trinity Grove is work our way through a book of the Bible, but uh, we thought we'd spend a few weeks just thinking about what does God have to say about how we relate to each other, how do we think about relationships in all sorts of ways. And so today... We're on dating. Um, can I just say, as a preface, um, it's, help, it's a whole package, the series, in a way, getting your head around all the talks that we started with identity and marriage, last week sex, and now today dating. They all kind of work together. Um, and the little preamble that's in the booklet, 
Um, I think is actually helpful for setting the framework as well uh, that we established in the first week. Um, and if you're here, that may help you get a bit of grounding of how we think about things. One of the things we've been doing is we've been thinking about how does society, how has society got to the way it has? And we started in our first week with the five things. And each week, before we start, we kind of revisit and remind ourselves in different ways. We've had a few songs um, and to highlight that, I've got a few doozies of songs next week, but today we're going to do it a bit differently. So if you've been here in previous weeks, you might remember the five things. I want you to see if you can come up with what each picture represents to just remind us where we're heading. So let's see if the clicker's all good, yep. The first one is Calvin and Hobbes. Anyone see, read Calvin and Hobbes? He's fantastic, I love Calvin and Hobbes. He says, all right, here's a nickel, what do I get? Nothing, I just ripped you off. And then her, his uh, friend says, what? And his response is, well, that's life. What one is that? Can you remember? I'm not going to tell you what the five are. You've got it. Just see if you can remember. What's Calvin concerned about most? So I heard something. It is radical individuality. Calvin, throughout the, the comics... He's worried about himself. In that comic, he doesn't care what happens to his friend. He loves picking on her. She's like the character that he always picks on. Um, and as a boy, it was always, it's always very funny. Um, but he picks on her for the sake of himself. And we've talked about each talk that we live in a culture where being an individual and you getting to determine what you want matters above all else. All right? Next one, the church, bar and restaurant. Anyone want to have a guess what this picture may represent? Come on, be bold and brave. Post-Christendom, that's right, because have you noticed, um, I often say that Adelaide, people say Adelaide is the, um, the city of churches. I sometimes call it the city of church buildings because a lot of the churches are now turning to something else, you see. It's, we're in a post-Christendom society. We, we're not now, and we're moving more and more away from where Christianity sets the tone. That's really where we're at. So that's, that's something that's happening more and more and we need to realise that as we think about what it is to be a Christian. All right, the third one, a bit of Bible this time, see if you can get this one. Two great passages from the Bible. John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And Christmas is just before, uh, just coming around the corner where we remember Jesus is Emmanuel God with us. Which one of the five does this, well, this speaks against, kind of counters? Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Well, you're ready for Bible college, Jake. Well done. Um, Gnosticism. If you've never encountered that fancy word, Gnosticism, we thought it's an important one because back when the Bible um, in the early um, church started, they were countering a belief in which there was this special knowledge and this stuff that we have, our physicalness, is irrelevant, doesn't matter, even wicked, what matters is something other and it's a special knowledge and it's not the physical. Physical doesn't matter. And actually, it's really interesting, isn't it? In that's the context, God comes into the world and he says, God with us. God became flesh. I think it matters. And so we've got to realise that and wrestle with that in our relationship series. All right. Does anyone can fluke who this is? No, no, it's not. It is Henry Ford. Does anyone know what Henry Ford's got to do with anything? This is the most cryptic one. What one's missing? What one haven't we done? 
Pardon? Ah, oh, we haven't done that one either yet, So that, but it's the other one. What's the other one? The sexual revolution. What's Henry Ford got to do with the sexual revolution? Last week we saw quite easily how Hugh Hefner... <laughs> That's exactly right, actually. As we do dating, the dating that we have today, one of the biggest things that changed dating was the fact that people didn't need to be chaperoned and they could just get away because they could drive. They could just go pick up and off they go and they had parking. It actually is funny, but it's also true. The invention of the car has shaped socially how we date. And with the sexual revolution, now you can get away, it actually helped. And then last one um, is uh, that Ruth pointed out, relativism. The society which says you can believe whatever you want. And I've gone back to Calvin for the last one. If you can't read it, let me read it to you. He's talking to his little... Uh, doll that comes alive in the cartoons, if you haven't read it. And um, he, he says to him, how are you doing on your New Year's resolution? And Calvin says, I didn't make any. See, in order to improve oneself, one must have some idea of what's good. That implies certain values. But as we all know, values are relative. Every system of belief is equally valid and we need to tolerate diversity. Virtue isn't better than vice, it's just different. And uh, he's... Uh, Hobbes says to him, I don't know if I can tolerate that much tolerance. And Calvin says, very poignantly, to our society of the day, I refuse to be victimised by notions of virtuous behaviour. Virtue offends me, because I can believe what I believe, you believe what you believe, and there's no system, there's no truth, and we can do whatever we like. Those five things I'm labouring every week. You may be getting sick of me doing it, but that's what we're going to do for the last two weeks as well, because it really shapes our society and it shapes how even Christians think about relationships and so today we're going to wrestle with this a bit further we're going to think about what it means um, in relationships when it comes to dating now before I go any further the outline that you have there on page 12 slight little change to it I just thought it'd be helpful to point that out Um, under the second point there's a title over all of them it's it's getting our heads around it, and then the history of dating, and then the second point then is not how is dating related to marriage, it's how to approach um, this difficult topic. All right, let me pray, and then we're going to get into uh, God's Word together, um, which is a challenge because the Bible doesn't talk about dating directly. So (laughs) let's see how we go. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can come together today, whether we've turned up at Grove for the first time or whether we're here every week. We pray now, wherever we are in our relationships with you, we'll understand you better as we see and consider dating. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Why is forming relationships like living a Greek myth? I don't know if you've ever heard of the ancient Greek myth called Jason and the Argonauts. Has anyone heard of that myth? Yeah, some myths there. It tells a tale of how Jason and his friends embark on a quest to find a golden fleece. And on their journey, they have to navigate all sorts of dangers. On one occasion, they come across a nymph, a beautiful maiden, next to a a beautiful stream, and she grabs one of Jason's men and drowns him in the water. Then they have to navigate the ship between those two huge cliffs, which randomly smash together, crushing any ship which dares sail between them. And on their final journey, they must find a way past the three sirens, 
three beautiful women who attract sailors to them with their beautiful voices only to lure ships onto rocks below their island. So whenever you think about this tale, I can't help think it sounds a little bit like dating. We have a goal, a relationship in the end, maybe a marriage at the end of it, but in order to get there, we go through a lot of rubbish and a lot of heartache and a lot of pain and a lot of trial and we're kind of getting smashed against the rocks and sometimes it doesn't work out and it's really hard work. Sometimes it's difficult waters to navigate. And so what I would love us to do today is not feel like we're getting smashed against the rocks wherever life has put us at the moment that we can understand how God thinks about dating. And as a Christian community, whether that's um, something that's way past us, we're in the middle of it or wherever we are, we together get our uh, heads around the way God wants us to think. So how do we get our heads around it? Well, first of all, we need to understand the history of dating. You see, in the first century, the model was a little bit different. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ, people who have decided to love and follow Jesus and then what happens is they get betrothed, these two are going to get married and then you know what happens? They get married. Now, this is kind of the model that we're in. Brothers and sisters in Christ, they start seeing each other, that's a nice way of saying dating, they hang out together, they spend a lot of time together, sometimes it goes on and on and on and on for many years then they get engaged, then there's a period that goes on, sometimes that goes on and on and on for many years, and then they get married. It's a very different scenario. The the process of the New Testament is different. And so the Bible doesn't directly talk about dating because there wasn't this thing that we do now. But the Bible is timeless, it trumps culture, and actually we want it to shape our culture and shape who we are. But this topic is even difficult because how we even approach it is hard. It's very difficult getting our heads around it. How we approach it or the perspective that we come to it is is difficult. The reality is some of us are dating now. Some of us are single and have got to the point that we're okay with that. Some of us are single and it's heartache. That, that's the situation you're in. Some of us are single because we've been widowed. Our relationship painfully hasn't worked the way we want, wanted to. And so it's a difficult approach. And that's why that preamble where we talk about always love and compassion and respect is that's how we talk about this subject together. I approach it as one who's been married 18 years, has three kids, and I, ma- I was dating in the 90s, And am I an expert on it? I married the one person that I went out with. But it's difficult, not just because of the perspective we're coming to, we've got those five things in the background that are shaping us. And then we, as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, our line for this series is, we want what God wants. Next week when I do that, everyone's going to say it out loudly. God wants. We're going to get there, my goal. We want what God wants. That's been the kind of what we're trying to wrestle with each week. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what you want. If you don't know where you are with Jesus, it's reasonable to think that that's what Christians are trying to, uh, uh, to see and it's helpful for you to say, oh, that's why they think the way they do. The final reason I think it's also tricky is because how important is it really? In other words, how important is it really is there's so many different opinions, does it really matter how you go about it? Have a look at this, look at this for example. There's two radically different positions. There's a guy named um, Joshua Harris, if you've heard of Joshua Harris. He's written some books on topic. He's a good, really good Bible teacher. He's written some helpful books. He's got a book here called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And he says in this book, this is the very cautious conservative view, right? He says, personally, I've committed to waiting even for a kiss until I'm married. I want the first kiss with my wife to be on my wedding day. That's the extreme conservative end. Whether you go down that path or not, the, his books are actually really helpful and really thought-provoking and have a lot of helpful things to say. Then there are others who are, let's say, are a little bit more loose in their approach. Here we have Henry Cloud who says, if you're looking to change and grow as a person in the course of dating, then accepting a date from someone with whom you do not share beliefs is a great human experience. Date whoever you like. The Teen Study Bible. You have to kiss a few frogs before you find your prince in a Bible commentary. That's why Bible notes on the bottom aren't always great. No wonder we can get confused when in the Christian context, there's the extremes and we've got to wade our way through it. I think what we need to do is we need to realise we are actually moving from brothers and sisters to something more. The starting point is to remember each one of us here who is a follower of Jesus, as you look to another follower of Jesus, they are your brother and sister in Christ. And if you're not married to them, that's all they are to you. Your brother and sister in Christ. And so, does God have someone special for you? Well, the first thing is to say, you don't have to get married, you don't have to date. Paul made this point when he was talking about marriage and singleness. He says, it should come up on the screen, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am. He's saying single. But each man has his own gift from God. One has the gift of another, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It is very, very foreign to our culture to refrain from sex and marriage for the sake of the gospel. It's crazy. Like our culture where the sexual revolution says if it's pleasurable, do it. Individuality where you've got to express your desires. And the Bible is saying, you know what? Paul, the big apostle who God gave direct instructions to start the church, is saying it's good not to be married. It's actually a good place to be. To be married, to not be married, does not concern, does not mean that you can't serve God. And that is why it's really important for us to start with seeing each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So what is dating? I'm just going to move on. There we go. Yep. What is dating? Let me give you a definition. A time to get to know if a brother or sister in Christ 
is someone you are willing to promise the rest of your life to in marriage. Let me just say it again. A time to get to know if a brother or sister in Christ is someone you are willing to promise the rest of your life to in marriage. Now, I know that's a pretty high view of dating, but what are the other alternatives? If you uh, go out with someone, uh, maybe your philosophy philosophy could be because it's fun, it's because it's innocent and it's just part of growing up in life, it's, it's a rite of passage, or whatever way you come up with it, does that work in a framework of how God wants us to shape relationships? I think we find that very difficult to do. And I think we'll see that as we wade our way through um, the rest of this morning. See, there's, what we need to wrestle with is that in regards to dating, you can break up. When you're engaged, you can break up. I actually say this to any couple that are married, that until you're married, you can actually break up. If you think that, oh, it shouldn't happen, but now it's too late. It's not too late. That is a helpful place to be in. It's a really helpful place for teenagers to be in as you're wrestling with all your emotions and things. It seems to me in all the youth ministry that I've done, it's harder, it's harder for teenagers to break up with their girlfriends and boyfriends than it is for society's married couples to divorce because of all the emotions and everything's going on. And actually, you know what? We can, it, it's a good thing to do. So who then do I marry? How do I think about this? Most people think it's the most important question you can ask into your future. You get this one right, your marriage will be fantastic. You get this one wrong and you'll have no hope for success. I asked Jen when she thought, um, she thought that she, yep, I'm going to marry Michael. She laughed at me and said, I'm still deciding. <laughs> I'm okay, it's all good. But <laughs> I know that, that's actually not the case. We got married, we got, we got engaged 10 months, right? Um, after we were going out. I think I decided after about three months. And the reason I say this was, is because then I thought, righto, she's got to put up with me. Three months isn't enough time to convince her that I'm a nice guy and that she should marry me. So I waited longer and longer until I thought I got to that point. But I, I was, commit stuff for three months. But if it's longer or less, well, how do you figure it out? When we've talked about marriage, we said faithfulness to your promises to give each other your word is key to what the Bible talks about. Faithfulness is a biblical theme that God runs through for his people. Be faithful to me, God says, and the people keep breaking that promise. And so in your relationships, your marriage relationships, faithfulness shapes everything. You see, really what matters is not who's that right person. It's not who you choose that makes for a happy marriage, but the choices that you make every hour, the choices that you make every day to fulfill the promises you make on your wedding day. So who should you go on a uh, start dating with? Who should you end up marrying? Well, there's lots to think about. There's lots to think about. I've got a few here that hopefully are helpful for us as a Christian community to think through. The first couple are kind of obvious for a Christian community and I'm just going to touch on them and then move into some more of the meatier ones. But the first one, which is maybe obvious to a Christian mindset, but is so far as we know in our recent time, 
in Australia so far from the, our, our society. And that is, you should marry someone of the opposite sex. We accept what's happened in our, in, in our country and the plebiscites happen, the, the laws are being passed. We live in a society in which, <coughs> in which that's the decisions have been made. But as Christians, we won't deny that God's plan is that marriage is for male and female. Jesus said, as you can see on the screen, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus, going back to the passage that we've looked at over and over in this series in Genesis 2, clearly outlines for us. And it's important that in our culture, which has gone completely individual, which has embraced the sexual revolution, which just says, do whatever you like, that we are going to be different to that, even if it's, there's a cost. The second one, obvious, I'll just say to move on, it's someone who's not already married. Well, hope, hopefully, you're on board with that one. Uh, there's a passage there, but we'll, we'll move on. And it's someone who's not a relative as well, in a, is the third one. Someone who is not a relative, that would be wise. The Bible talks about it, common sense, and if you think that's an issue for you, um, let's have a chat later. Now let's get to the fourth one. Someone who will freely say yes. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, talking to engaged couples who are under pressure to stay single in, in Corinth and not marry, he says you've got two options. You can break up or you can get married. Have a look at the passage on the screen. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if she's getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind uh, not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her, uh, her husband. What's on the next one? Sorry. Sorry. The, verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to many, marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. Paul's saying, if you're going to get married, don't leave them dangling. Get married. Be clear, communicate, be in a relationship that is going somewhere. But if you know this isn't going anywhere, what are you doing? Why are you being so unfair? Do the right thing. It's even better, he's saying, move on from that. Now, <coughs> I, I wanted to know that Jen wanted to marry me. I think there's two points in our, in our dating experience where I realised if she's going to put up with that, it's good. The first one... I may have said before when we were, we were walking in a park and holding hands and it was raining and it was a downhill slope and walking in the mud and I slipped and have I told you this story? I slipped and I, and I dragged Jen down and she was in this coat that she loved and she rolled in the mud, it rolled over. I did this amazing kind of spin cartwheel, didn't land, I landed on my feet and Jen's lying in the mud and I laughed and went, ta-da! <laughs> she looked up at me and said, I can't believe you have just done that. <laughs> and she still went out with me. 
The other time, very similar, we were going to a, a 21st birthday party and she lived around the corner. She drove up in the car and this time of year, the crows are coming and she gets out of the car and I'm waiting for her. Anticipation, oh, another night with Jen, it's going to be fantastic. And this magpie swoops and goes ahead of her and I'm laughing inside, laughing, laughing. She sees me laughing through the window and is like, are you kidding me? And I waited for the magpie to go before I went out. That's when I knew. My, my complete ridiculous selfishness, and Jen putting up with that, realised she's the, she's the right person. You see, you want to marry someone who's free to choose to marry you, and if Jen's willing freely to do that after that, well then that's the right person. Because sometimes you can be in this relationship and you think you're trapped, but you don't admit to yourself you're trapped, and so you keep going, and then all of a sudden it happens and you get married. And emotions are not your friend at those times. See, what I'm saying here is what I've said just before. Until the moment you exchange rings on your wedding day, do the right thing by the other person and get it right and break up if you need to. There's been some horrible stories I've heard where couples haven't done that. Where they've kept it together, but reality they were pining for someone else. And on their... on. On their honeymoon, they found a Christian couple. They found their spouse with someone else because they were completely convicted and living a lie and they didn't deal with it before they got married. They dealt with it after. We don't want to go down that path. So it's important to see that. But also, um, we've got this one. Someone who is a Christian. Now, on the top of my page here, just to remind me, I've got don't rant, be helpful. Because <laughs> if I ever rant, it's on this topic, okay? Because people have said to me lots of times doing ministry, um, well, show me a verse where the Bible says don't marry non-Christians. It's not the right... You can do that. I love Jesus. I'll serve him. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Chill out. Now, I don't want a verse to go to to convince you of that. I want you to use your Christian, godly brain that God has transformed you if you're living in Christ and think about the story of the Bible. You see, just think about it for a moment. The constant beat of the Bible, those that belong to Jesus, devote themselves wholly to him. Not on Sundays for a time and then try and be a good person. It's that you live for Jesus because the Spirit is transforming you to be like Christ. That's the plan as God's people. Now, think about it in the context of the person who is going to be the most important human. I know Jesus became human, and yes, that's still true, but other than Jesus, the most important human in your life, which your spouse needs to be, doesn't love Jesus. I give my life totally to the Lord in everything. That's what you decided, that when Jesus died for you, gave up his life on the cross, he took your place, you give your life to him, you long for heaven... And the person that you live with for the rest of your life, you don't care that they don't believe in that and want to go there with you before you're married. Can we see how it's just rampant disobedience without needing to find a magic verse? We see that God wants us to live for him. I've been a minister for you know, 10 years or so now I can't think of another issue, maybe one other, where it's caused 
so much grief in my pastoral ministry. Another issue that has caused me so much pain as people have attacked me when I've said something like this or when I've seen relationships fall apart or where I've seen Christians who are following Jesus give up the gospel because of this issue. It's been one of the biggest pastoral things that I've had to deal with because God wants his people to be his people. Does that make sense? Is that clear? And the Bible actually does give you a verse to clear, clarify that. I, I wanted to show you a verse here. It does make it pretty obvious. We read it before. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. And she can't marry someone. There's a context for when he's saying it, but, but if you marry someone, they've got to love Jesus, belong to the Lord. You see, the reason is there's a purpose for marriage. We've already done that, haven't we, in our marriage talk? where it's this beautiful relationship which, which reflects Jesus in the church. So in Ephesians chapter 5, 25, which we've been to before, it comes up there. We see a husband's love, your, we'll just look at from the, the husband bit um, for the sake of time. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The husband is to present his wife beautiful as he seeks to be like Christ, his wife with him. If your wife does not love Jesus, good luck with that. Now, I do want to just stop for a moment and say, when you get married, life throws up all sorts of things. And the Bible does speak into those times and the Bible is of grace and forgiveness. And you deal with what's in front of you. And God transforms hearts and minds and you can serve him no matter what your life circumstances do bring out. But before you jump into it, can we see where we're going? It's the same for the wife who, who says, you know, the, the wife should submit to her husband and we saw that submit means this idea that you want him to lead your family because you, submission and respect are intertwined together. It's not this, he rules over me with headship and he tells me what to do. It's that he's laying down his life for me. I will willingly follow that. Massively different. If your boyfriend now can't get his life in order and you have to force him to read the Bible, drag him to church, or your girlfriend won't come to Bible study, has totally different views on God, how are you going to have a Christian family? We're free to marry whoever we want in that way. But what else should you look for? The next one, number six, someone who has character, not just style. Jen lucked out, she got style as well, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> so not true. Before, I had first... First week at uni, I was wearing tracksuit pants and a flannel. So there was no style. Jen gave me the style, right? But you see, style is irrelevant. Character matters. It's a bit old now, but if you ever saw How I Met Your Mother, the guy with all style and class is one of the most despicable characters ever to be on television when it comes to relationships. Destruction of sex. Barney Stinson in How I Met Your Mother. That is what 
you look to. I remember when, when that show was on and I had youth group and they used to love Barney because he was so funny and he was the guy to look to and I was like, guys, take a moment to think about this. Look for the type of guy. Well, we read Proverbs 23. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes keep to my ways for a prostitute is a deep pit and a wayward wife is a narrow well. Like a bandit, she lies in wait and multiplies the unfaithful among men. When you think about a guy, is this the guy, the sort of guy who will be faithful to me alone? So we as a church, no matter who you are, we want to be faithful men and faithful women. That is what we do. So when someone comes, that is what they see. Has a man shown himself to be the sort of guy who isn't just into you for some reason uh, that he can move on from, but that he only has eyes for you? Or is he flirting? with anyone and what that looks like? Does he just love being single so he can play the field and enjoy the attention? I hope that never happens at Grove as we grow and we get more and more teenagers and young adults and everything, but I've seen it in church happen so often. Ladies, look for the faithful man because if he can't be faithful and trustworthy now, do you think he'll be faithful to you when he's married? Who you really want is the guy that Job says. This is a great little verse in Job. It was pointed out to me. Job 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Guys, as we'll see next week when we do the talk on temptation, um, we'll all struggle and we're in a society where porn and images are just bombarding us. We're all struggling. But we make a covenant, we make a promise keep coming back to Christ and to not going there. The guy who treats you like a sister, not as a special loved one when you're dating, but as a sister who loves you, who serves you and treats you, treats uh, the other girls, you know, like sisters with purity, that's the guy to look for. Tall, dark, handsome, intelligent, life of the party, but they're married, don't give them a look. It's the way both ways, isn't it? We want, the husband, he could think, well, he could, be, um, he could be short, he could be bald, he could be tall, he could be less educated, he could be more educated. We've got to stop turning to the superficial and realise that we do let that impact us. We want to see delight, delightful, uh, relationships built on Christ-likeness. That picture of the noble woman, you should read that and think all people should see. That's one impressive person, right? But what the, the, at the end of Proverbs, or the end of wisdom of what life should be like is this woman who has just got it all together. It's a bit daunting really for anyone. But the point of that, um, that reading, if you go back and read Proverbs 31, is that we see a woman who loves the Lord. Guys, is that where you're at? When you look for relationships, is that what we seek to do in our continuing relationships? Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. See that last week, didn't we? <laughs> I didn't always look like this. It's going to get worse. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. See that? A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I'm so thankful to God. There's so many wonderful women at Grove of all different ages 
from the little girls that are out and the kids to some wonderful godly women who have been going through their whole life serving the Lord. And we praise God for you. When you think, um, guys, I want to just be clear. Do not chase after vain, self-centered women. Find someone who has humble and deep Christian qualities. Someone who clearly puts Jesus first. Who will be trustworthy in their vow of long, lifelong devotion to you. Who will bring honor to you through reliable parenting, provision and public support of your name. Girls, if you feel it would be impossible to trust your life to a man, maybe the men you experience in life have been pathetic. And I do want to pause and just say that in a group this size, there is no doubt some people, whether the men in your life, whether your father or other men, have deeply and profoundly let you down. That grieves us and has caused you lots of heartache. It could be things that are, it's hard to imagine and bear. Can I say to you um, that while that can't change, my hope is that you've seen where we're going to end today with this great verse in 1 John. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us? That Father, God himself, never, ever, ever lets any one of us down, even when this side of heaven, the fathers and men who shouldn't have, have. We live seeking redemption in Christ, but we look to that Father first. And all the while, if you're looking for a husband, you look to that father and you find a guy who's shaped by his son, Jesus. He reflects his nature of being a servant, not being a big head. This is the type of community, the type of character that we want to be. So we want our relationships and our dating relationships to be like that. I've got a couple more to go, go really quickly. I want someone who wants uh, to be known and accepted by your family. We don't live as rules in our family, but I do have three. And my kids know they can say them off heart. They are. If you're going to um, marry someone, they have to love Jesus, they have to love and treasure you, and I have to like them. <laughs> I'm not joking about that third one. That's not just me being selfish. I have to like them. They know that. I've built that in. Because actually, we've gone so radically individual that we've forgotten that fathers and mothers are wise and they love you. And if they've brought you up in the Lord and you're young and you're wrestling with it, they have great counsel and wisdom. Listen to them. And I want to actually like my future in-laws. It's a picture that I think is biblical. We have swung so far the other way that we want someone... And we want to actually do this as a community. So as a Christian community, we, that, we, that's why we don't just separate those who may be dating now or in the future. We talk about this whole relationship series together, even, even when it's hard for us. So, when should I get married? Number eight. Well, when you're in the season of marriage would be a good idea, don't you reckon? 
We, what we have in our society is a try before you buy culture. Let's just have a bit of fun, but I know it's not going down this path, but it'll be good while it lasts. And it's built into the Christian culture and many Christian relationships. We want to get rid of that. We want other person-centred relationships. And so dating relationships take us on that path. If you know you're not getting married into the future for a long time and you're just spending one-on-one time with a person and fostering great intimacy with them over and over and over again and getting down a path, where is that going to lead you other than unhelpfulness? I think it's not serving each other to be exclusive with someone you know you can't marry. So when it comes to teenage dating, it's not like, oh, you shouldn't spend any time with the other sex or even spend some time hanging out with them. But think about, are we spending this this dating culture that we have in teenagers and at school where you spend all this exclusive time and you push all your other friends away? What are you doing? Actually, you get to know someone when you hang out with them in your friends. Get to know with them, enjoy time with them. Sure, you can hang out with them for a period, but you're not fostering this intimacy. And then if you think, you know what, what are we doing? You don't go down a path that is unhelpful. I don't think it's wise to foster deep, personal, loving affection when you say 14. What's the point if you're seeking to love Jesus? Where is it going to head? But of course, embrace relationships and friendships and foster. I know some great friends who actually married the person that they were really, they got to know when they were 14 and they spent time together and they hung out and they kind of at some point made it a bit more official as they got older. Um, (coughs) um, But we need to, I think, be a lot wiser and kind of counter this, oh yeah, you twirl, who do you like? Isn't that great? Why don't you go out and spend some time with them? And then all of a sudden, teenagers who are totally confused, the whole sex talk we had uh, last week, which was totally confusing, the temptation stuff we'll deal with next week, and teenagers with all their emotions and feelings and going on, turn away from their parents and all of a sudden they're lost. I think we should think about dating when we're in the season of marriage. Um, As we finish... I just wanted to point out what you could do is ask some questions to yourself about dating. I I think these questions are helpful and we'll use these to finish. These are useful questions that you may ask, good for parents to consider, good for us all as a church to consider and if you're thinking about relationships, very helpful for you I think. Have I asked myself the question, is it possible that I might one day marry this person? If you think no, it's not going to happen. Abort, abort, abort is the Christian response, I think. Do I want this particular boyfriend, girlfriend because it makes me feel valued and accepted? Is your relationship your God? Marriage relationships can be your God. Of course, boyfriend, girlfriend relationships can be, especially for teenagers. Will I be the sort of guy or girl that a godly Christian guy or girl would want to marry? Do I seek to get the attention of guys and girls by flirting with them? Am I overly concerned about what I wear and how I look because this is the only way to get a boyfriend or girlfriend? We need to constantly visit how we attract the other sex with what we say and what we wear and seek 
purity and godliness. Have I considered the long, that long-term dating can be cruel to the other person if I keep them waiting for a decision to commit? And as we uh, talk about this, the one thing I, I did want to say is that I've changed this series slightly too, that um, we're going to do a, a talk more on just generally being human and singleness and relationships as a whole instead of trying to just weave it into uh, this talk today um, because I think that would be more helpful for all of us as a community. Because the last one, is Jesus more important to me than any relationship I may or may not have? Is Jesus more important to me than any relationship I may or may not have? As I said, I want us to finish with 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we all should be called the children of God. And that is what we are when we've trusted in Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for uh, our opportunity to come together as your people and hear your word on a challenging topic. Help us to live for you. Help us to set our eyes on you as you wrestle with relationships, the joy, the pain, the heartache, the confusion. Head us to set our eyes on Jesus. Amen.